Well, it's a great honor and joy to get to speak to you this morning about the man I was named after. Though I haven't always appreciated it. David is a fairly common name, at least in my generation. There were times when I wanted something more distinctive. But over the years, I've grown to appreciate David, the first David, more and more. He has his clear failures. And so somebody with his name (laughs) thinks about those really quickly. And yet, he is such a compelling and genuinely good king and genuinely good man. That's what we want to talk about in this first session, his manhood. Not meaning his humanity as much as his masculinity. Now, I owe special thanks to Bethlehem College and Seminary for one of the promotional emails a few months ago. Uh, The email featured a headshot of each of the speakers, and underneath it was the title of their session. So I opened my email one day in June, and I see my smiling face, and it says immediately underneath it, David the Giant Slayer. (laughs) I get a text that morning from one of our congregants, went to screen grab saying, congratulations, slaying the giant. Made sure to show my wife and my kids, tuck that screen grab away for later. To encounter the life of David some 3,000 years later can be a challenge for us as modern men. You linger here. You linger on this life for a little bit, and you might find a call to cultivate some reasonable Davidic strength of body and of soul. Whether in a king or a father or a husband or a friend, our people don't want men with limp wrists, but with strong arms. And yet, not only strong arms, as we'll see. Perhaps the reason that I haven't always been so thrilled at being named David is because for a long time, I think I misunderstood him. Maybe I didn't realize that David and Goliath were not always to scale in the children's books and on the felt board. And at least well into my adulthood, I had a pretty one-dimensional and domesticated view of David. I thought of him as the shepherd, the little shepherd who became king, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, and so he was. And of course, we all know that David killed Goliath as a youth, But I assumed that it came from, what, one lucky shot? Rather than any skill in battle or any reflection of his manhood, I didn't think of David as particularly masculine. And this might also betray a misunderstanding of shepherds as well. I thought of shepherds more like mothers than like warriors. Only later did I realize those guys carry a rod and a staff for a reason. They need to protect the sheep and crush wolf skulls. Ancient shepherds were not only feeders. They also had to be ready to be fighters. But there's a specific scene near the end of David's reign that began to pop the bubble for me of this one-dimensional view of David. And it gave me a glimpse into his masculinity. 
And help me see him as more than just a singer-songwriter from Nashville. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, when David's son Absalom has rebelled against him and marched on Jerusalem and sent David retreating, his loyal friend Hushai, I would love to know more about Hushai. Hushai pretends to have swapped sides to Absalom so that he can defeat the rebel council. And as Hushai makes his case, which ends up carrying the day, he characterizes David in terms that all the wise men in the room agree with. This is what Absalom says, what Hushai says to Absalom in 2 Samuel 17, 8. He says, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. Not puny little kid who had a lucky shot. Your father is expert in war, and not just the men, but David himself is a mighty man. In fact, the first time that Scripture speaks of David, even before the Goliath account, he's introduced by one of Saul's servants, not only as one who's skillful in playing, but as a man of valor and a man of war and a man of good presence. Right, this is 1 Samuel 16, 18, Saul's servant. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And then in the following chapter, we learn that David, though still a youth, has killed bears and lions. And based on such preparation and his faith in God's help, David has the courage to step forward and face Goliath. And though David does not intend to fight Goliath hand-to-hand, -hand, he will engage him in personal battle as a projectile warrior and puts his own life at stake to do it. Can you imagine what it was like to go through picking up the stones? Picks up the first. God, land the stone. <laughs> land the first. And if I miss with the first, this is projectile war. Like, if you're, if you're right with somebody, you're pretty sure you can land the sword. But as a baseball guy, I know the uncertainty of projectiles. Okay? He picks up his first stone. God, land the stone. And if this one misses, maybe there's time for another before Goliath takes my head off. So he picks up a second. Maybe best case scenario, picks up a third, and... Don't want to stamp too few arrows. Let me grab two more extras just in case. And David strikes him with the first. And this youth is strong enough in his youth to take Goliath's massive sword from its sheath and cut the giant neck and take his head off. Don't misunderstand David. He's youth, but he's not puny. And soon the imposing Saul 
who we learn is head and shoulders above the other Israelites. He should have been their lead warrior. Saul will hear women singing and dancing in the streets saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the youth grows up. Doesn't stay youth. He becomes a fierce warrior. And so Saul sets him over all the men of war. And to win Saul's daughter as his bride, David collects 200 Philistine foreskins. And later we hear that David leads an army of 30,000 men. And 2 Samuel 8, he is victorious wherever he goes. And at the end of his life, the reason God gives for why David will not build the temple, but Solomon will build the temple, is that David is a man of war, not just singer-songwriter. And then comes Psalm 18. Oh, I love Psalm 18. Psalm 18 appears in the narrative of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And it appears at the end of David's life as a celebration of God's deliverance from all David's enemies. And the psalm represents the physical strength and skill that God gave David. It celebrates bodily strength and ability. So verse 29, David can run against a troop, he says. And don't just take on anybody one-on-one. -on -one. He can run against a troop. And he can leap over a wall. Verse 31, he says that God equipped me with strength. In verse 33, he made my feet like the feet of a deer. Verse 34, God trained my hands for war. Not just lucky shots, years of training to be ready for battle. Making his arm strong, strong enough to bend a bow of bronze. Maybe he's not Samson, but he's 95 plus percentile, I'm assuming. David, it seems, is a physical specimen and an all-around warrior. He runs with speed and agility. He can climb and leap. His arms are strong enough to wield weapons. His hands have been trained over long years in the skills of battle. He would have done amazingly at the NFL Combine, and he's a top three pick, no doubt, maybe number one. And yet... Right here in Psalm 18, as he celebrates God's good provision of physical, manly prowess, David makes a striking claim in verse 35. It's a claim that takes David's manhood up, not down, up to a new level and surpasses the glory of slaying a giant in his youth. Is it 2 Samuel 22, 36, or Psalm 18, verse 35? He says to God, your gentleness made me great. Physical strength and skill with proven valor and combat experience may have made David expert in war, but that's not what made him great. These are good things. Strong feet, quick feet and strong arms and skilled hands, military triumphs. 
But those physical manifestations of manliness are not what made David great, he says. It was God's gentleness that made him great. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that God's gentleness made him great? We might understand that in two ways. One, God had been gentle with David. David had many flaws and failures and sins, and we know of them. God could have rejected him and cut him off from the throne at any point. Yet, God was gentle with him. God was gracious with him. David was undeserving, but God was not exacting, but he was gentle. And while that's true, I think David's saying even more here in verse 35, Psalm 18. Not only had the omnipotent God been gentle with David, but God's own gentleness had changed David. God's own gentleness had come to take root in David's heart and characterize David's own life and leadership. And so as David came to the throne and came to wield all the powers of kingship, he did so with gentleness. David, as king, was gentle with others. But this is such a quick statement in verse 35, Psalm 18. How might we increase our confidence that we're reading David accurately right here? I want to make sure we get him right. How might we confirm that his own self-understanding of what made him great was not his manly physique and his physical abilities, but his godly gentleness? And there are several key episodes in the life of David that accent his, his gentleness or his tenderness or his graciousness as his greatness and not his tragic flaw. First, at the end of 1 Samuel, David exercises a form of godlike gentleness even before he becomes king. The second half of 1 Samuel chronicles his journey into the wilderness to elude Saul's desire to kill him. I think we'll have more on that tonight from Joshua. In chapter 24 and then again in chapter 26, David happens upon a vulnerable Saul and he could have ended Saul's life violently. And yet, David himself, as God's anointed, chooses not to reach out his hand against God's anointed and seize the kingdom for himself. Rather, he waits years on end for the kingdom to come to him. He trusts in God and in God's timing and in manly humility and in the godly gentleness that flows from it, David lets Saul go and waits for God. And then right in the middle of these two accounts, in chapter 25, David almost avenges himself. Maybe you know that story. Here the warrior prince is insulted by a fool named Nabal. And David reacts in a very natural way. Very natural, manly, warrior-like response. 
He tells his men to strap on their swords. And then a wise woman, and this is Nabal's own wife, Abigail, intervenes and pleads for David to be gentle. Pleads for him, be the bigger man. Be bigger than using your sword. Rather than stretch out your own hand to take revenge, David deals gently with the fool, and God honors that by striking the ball dead 10 days later. So we have some reason, even as early as the end of 1 Samuel, to see David's godly gentleness is what made him great, but we haven't yet looked at the two clearest and most important places about David's gentleness leading up to 2 Samuel 22. And both of these are in David's own words, and both of these are set in opposition to his cousin and the commander of his army, Joab. Joab serves as a masculine foil for the greatness of David. So let's look at these two key instances of manifest and articulated gentleness from David. First, chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. This is after the death of Saul. Joab avenges in peacetime the death of his brother Asahel from wartime. Saul's commander named Abner had struck down Asahel as Asahel pursued him in battle. And Abner warned him to turn aside, but Asahel would not. And so Abner struck him through in the stomach. And in time, Abner sought peace with David. And he delivered the rest of the kingdom to David. And so David and Abner gather and they feast together. And David sends Abner away under the banner of peace. However, Joab hears of it. Abner's a potential rival commander for Joab's own position. And Abner's the one that killed his brother. And so Joab draws Abner aside under the pretense of peace to speak with him privately and there struck him in the stomach. His classic revenge move, right? Kill my brother in the stomach, I kill you in the stomach. So that Abner died for the blood of Asahel, Joab's brother. And here a contrast begins to emerge between David and between Joab. Both can be fearsome in battle. Both are strong and brave and experts in war and mighty men. But Joab, while a real asset in war, is a liability back home. It's great to have Joab on your side in the wilderness. And it can be terrible to have Joab nearby in the city. Joab's unrighteous slaughter of Abner, who is Saul's former commander, now threatens the consolidation of the nation under David's rule. It's a real threat. And so David takes public action to mourn the death of Abner so that all the people of Israel will understand it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death. And then David speaks. And he speaks to his servants. And he wants to make clear the difference between him and Joab, the son of Zariah. 
2 Samuel 3, 38 to 39. Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Speaking of Abner. And David says, I was gentle today, though anointed king with all that power. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now, sons of Zariah refers to Joab and his brother Abishai. If we had time, I would love to rehearse some Abishai stories. Ugh. He has his moments of glory, and then his moments just like Joab in being the masculine foil to David's greatness. These are manifestly manly men. They are men of war. They are oozing with testosterone. They are great assets in battle. And they are great liabilities in peacetime. That leads us to the other mention from David himself of gentleness, leading up to this climactic mention in chapter 22. This is in chapter 18, 2 Samuel. Absalom has rebelled. Hushai has bought David some time. And then now David sends Joab and the army into battle. And in keeping with David's pattern of exercising strength and adding to it the virtue of gentleness, it's not gentleness in place of strength. It's appropriate strength, adding gentleness to it. David orders Joab in the presence of witnesses because he knows Joab. This is 2 Samuel 18, 5. Deal gently with my for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently with him. Now, some commentators see this as weakness and indiscretion in David. There's some modern sentimentality, perhaps, in this. Oh, it's his son. No, he wants to save his son. Remember, David is sending out his army. Okay? He's not buckling. He's not divesting himself of power. He's sending out his army. And knowing Joab says, deal gently with Absalom. So while some commentators see weakness, others see a glimpse of David's greatness at this moment. One of those is Peter Lightheart, who defends David's directions to Joab. Here's what he said. These instructions were consistent with David's treatment of all his enemies. He had treated Saul well, and he just recently had restrained Abishai from cutting down Shimei. would love to tell the story. He knew what Joab was capable of, and he wanted all his men to know that he treated enemies with kindness and compassion. David's behavior again provided an Old Testament illustration of Jesus' teaching about loving enemies. Of course, you know, Joab defies David's instructions, takes three javelins. Can you imagine? Three javelins thrust them through the heart of Absalom, again, accenting the difference between David and Joab. Both of these men are strong, but only one of these men is 
great. Both are warriors, but only one knows the moment when and has the ability to exercise gentleness. Joab is the one-dimensional man of war. He's strong, tenacious, courageous in battle. He'll risk it all. And yet, he's a caricature of mature masculinity. He's not the full expression of what it means to be a man. He can fight, but he's unable to curb his aggression when it's no longer needed. He's tough, but he's unable to cushion his strength or control his tenacity in the moment when wisdom calls for gentleness. And a growing number in the manosphere today are eager to offer their counsel to you how to be like Joab. In many circles, some of them are explicitly unbelieving circles, some under the banner of Christ, advocate in essence for men to rebel against the feminization of our world and the church by being more like Joab. Like this. Society's made you so soft. Time to man up. And then the vision of manhood that's presented is little more than a caricature of manly strength and backbone. They seem to prefer the pendulum swing to Joab as the necessary reaction to the feminized society. But, brothers, Joab and effeminacy aren't the only two options. David, man of war and giant slayer that he is, offers us the more mature vision of masculinity. And note well, David's not a mean between the two. Like balance it out. Job's here. Feminization's here. Let's get, find the mean between the two. That's not what David is. He is one who is every bit as manly as Joab. And then, with added abilities, even more so. In terms of strength and speed and skill with a weapon and ability to strategize and conquer in battle, we should not assume that Joab, ha Joab has much, if anything, on David. David, the giant slayer. David is every bit the man of war Joab is, but David surpasses Joab as a man, not by being more severe, but by adding to his manly strength the virtue of manly gentleness. David is the bigger man and the better model. David has learned gentleness from God himself. And so David can thrive in all contexts, not just battle. He does not have less strength than Joab, but more. David's abilities are multidimensional. He is strong and gentle. He can wield his strength when the moment calls for it, or with admirable restraint of his strength, he can walk 
in gentleness. David can lead a nation, not just an army. David can live in a city, not just rule his remote farm. And David, not Joab, is the Lord's anointed. And the man who is the type of the anointed who is to come. While Psalm 18 serves as a great tribute to God's work in and through David, there is much in the psalm, writes John Calvin, that agrees better with Christ than David. And when the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos caught his glimpses of the glory of the risen Christ, he too saw an exemplar of mature masculinity, strong and gentle, capable and compassionate. In Jesus, he not only saw a man, he saw the Almighty, he says in chapter 1. He turned to hear a voice like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face is like the sun shining in full strength. And later, John will see this lion of a man sitting on a white horse as one who judges and makes war in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 15, he says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. And this is the one who is introduced in heaven with regal dignity and sovereign power and military triumph as, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And how did he conquer? This is a glorious yet. This is our window. This is the place to take cover. This is the place to find shelter. Yet, when the apostle looked between the angels and the throne of heaven, what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. A lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb, awe-inspiring in majestic strength and seen to be truly great as the gentle and lowly the self-sacrificial, atoning Lamb of God. To be clear, the risen Christ is not puny. He sits in power on the very throne of the universe. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is not weak in the least. And in his masculine glory... His gentleness cushions the application of his great power as he marshals it in the service of his weak people. Brothers and sisters, do not mistake weakness for gentleness. They're not the same. And don't mistake gentleness for weakness. Gentleness is not the absence of strength, but the addition of Christ-like grace to cushion power to life-giving ends. 
The greatness of David is not that he slew the giant in his youth. The greatness of David is that as a man, he slew the giants in his own heart. Arrogance and pride, selfishness, unrighteous anger, petty disputes, personal offenses, private comforts and preferences and luxuries. David was the great king and the type of the one who was to come as a man who was not weak but strong and brave and more, as one who was kind and patient and gentle. He did not reach out his hand to seize power, but he waited on his appointment. And he traveled the long path of self-humbling, waiting for the time when God would exalt him. And once he was in power, he did not always leverage his full force, but he learned from God's own gentleness with him. And he learned how and when to be gentle with others. Let's pray together. So Father in heaven, Make us like Jesus. As David anticipated him, make our lives to echo his. Make us strong and gentle, capable as you would have us, and cultivating such capabilities and compassionate. Father, we look through David in his greatness to the one even greater. And Father, I pray for this conference. As we linger here in the life of David, would you challenge us, men and women, challenge us in many ways with this life, in his flaws, in his strengths, in his ruling, and in his pointing. Help us to rest in and reflect our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.